not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now. Now, normally, I pick the first song, and the guest picks the second song. In this case, my guest, Sharon Maeda, got to pick both songs because I was so delinquent at figuring out a good song. <laughs> and it does tie into something. It certainly does. So Sharon Maeda is, um, if you're a local Seattleite, you know of her because she was recently a finalist for an open city council seat. And that was the second time she's a finalist for a city council seat. But she's been a longtime activist and liberal here in the city of Seattle. She was a teacher. She worked at KCTS 9 as a, as a producer. She was at Pacifica Radio, which you may know of, and had a role there. She also, and this is uh, her particular claim to fame in my household, she is the woman who convinced my wife to get arrested on behalf of immigration reform. So we're going to talk about all those topics. You, Me, Us Now is a show where we talk to people who try to create change in the world, who they are where they came from, how they got involved, and, and why they do it. So I'm just really delighted to have you here, Sharon. It's great to be here, Mike. So why did you pick out that song? Well, because it it did have a lot to do with going from being a public school teacher to getting into media, both in television and radio. As a teacher of middle school students in the late 60s, I found that everything, all the values I was trying to teach the kids during the day was being undone by primetime television. What do you mean? Well, like there was a show called The Mod Squad where there were all these diverse young, pe- hip young people who were basically police snitches. And, you know, the kids really idolized these um, actors and the program. And it's very difficult to teach young people values standing in front of the room when you've got this highly produced, slick, television drama going on. And I realized then the power of the media and decided to get my master's in filmmaking and and to do something about making positive images for young people of color. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's a little bit of an anomaly. And that's because my parents and my grandparents' generation were all incarcerated in concentration camps here in the United States during World War II. And my parents were able to get out early, but in order to get out, they had to um, go inland um, to the Midwest or the East Coast. They could not come back to the West Coast. How old were you at the time? Well, I wasn't born till after they got to Wisconsin. So I was born in a Polish neighborhood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And But you came back to the Northwest. Well, then I must have been about a year old when it was the war was over and it was safe uh, to come back to the West Coast. And so my parents and I made it back to Portland, Oregon, which was where the family was from. And my sister was born there, and we went to elementary school there, primary grades there. And then we moved to Seattle when my father got a, a job at Boeing, um, like many other people at that time in the mid-50s. And we ended up in an upper-middle-class suburban neighborhood after living in an inner city in Portland. So it was quite a culture change. Did your parents talk about the camp with you? 
They did, but it was in a way, I must have been in senior high before I realized what that meant. Because we would go on family vacations and we'd see somebody or we'd see somebody downtown in Seattle or whatever. And they would always say, oh, we knew them in camp. We knew them in camp. And in my mind, it was like, man, that must have been a really huge Girls and Boy Scout camp that they knew so many people, that they met so many people from camp because that was my frame of reference. And uh, when I was a junior in high school, I did a term paper on the concentration camps. And that's when I really learned what it was about and how it came about. How'd that make you feel? Well, I was pretty upset, but there was very little, there were no books. There there was very little material available. And I remember sitting in uh, Ike Keta's basement, a family friend who had clipped all these newspaper clippings of the story of what happened back then. And I went through all these musty pieces of paper down in his basement, reading the facts about what happened. But it wasn't until I was in college that a lot of the the feelings, the the constitutionality, all of those things came out. So what? So where did you go to college? University of Washington. Uh, what what years were those? Nineteen sixty three through sixty eight. Those were pretty intense years. Well, actually, uh, the movement came to the UW a little bit late. So at that time, I was a young Democrat and. One of the um, was very involved in student activities. I got elected to the board of control um, in student government. I was in the model Congress, and you know all these kinds of good liberal kinds of things. And I didn't quite understand yet, you know, the system and how things were not the same for everybody. I still believed in, you know, democracy with a small d, and really thought that if you worked hard, that you could get ahead and you could make change and you could do all these things. And I guess the first time I really realized that the system doesn't work the same for everybody was after Bobby Kennedy was killed. I worked on his campaign organizing campus student groups for Bobby Kennedy throughout the Northwest. And after he was assassinated, I was very, very emotionally distressed. And during that time. I did a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and um, a lot of talking with other people. And, and that's when I really came, became a movement activist after that, when I realized that there were many forces in this country that didn't want some of us to have an equal opportunity. And how did you become, when you say you became a movement activist, what, what does that mean? You know, I devoted basically the rest of my life, regardless of what kind of career I was in, to make sure that those who had less opportunities had at least a fighting chance for equity or equality. Well, we mentioned your job as a teacher, and you told me a story about, um, you. after college, you became a school teacher. Right, in the Renton School District. You were telling me a story about um, some raising of consciousness there. Oh, well, that was... (laughs) This By this time, this is 1968 to 70, and the civil rights movement was really hot here in, in the Northwest as well as the rest of the country. We had about 50, 60 African-American students. This is 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. But they had older brothers and sisters who were in SNCC or NAACP, or parents were in the NAACP, or they had brothers that were in the Black Panthers. 
and they wanted to form a black student union at their school. And the vice principal told them that they could have a BSU, and all they had to do was get a faculty advisor. And the kids knew that that was a way of making sure that they didn't have a BSU. But when they told me about it, I agreed to be their advisor, much to the chagrin of the administration. And then I brought in a lot of people that I knew from the UW, like Larry Gossett and and the leaders of the NAACP and Reverend McKinney from Mount Zion Baptist and various civil rights leaders um, from the African-American community. I got them to come out to Renton after school and, and speak to these kids so the kids would have some kind of underpinning for what they wanted to do as a BSU. And what did the school think of that? Oh, they were, well, I almost got fired, I don't know how many times, <laughs> for various different things. And as a result, um, by the end of two years of teaching, I'm not sure if I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown or was just plain mad. But in any case, I went back to grad school because I just knew I couldn't stay there any longer. I mean, I wasn't fired, actually, but there was a lot of pressure. I was in the principal's office as much as the worst kid in the school. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do after that? I stayed on campus and I was a student activities advisor and I represented the BSU, among others, um, Poetic Justice. And uh, then I became director of the Ethnic Cultural Center at the University of Washington. And from there, I went to Channel 9. What did you do with Channel 9? Well, I was hired as a director of community involvement, which in their minds was kind of an outreach person. And in my mind, it was like, bringing diverse folks to the station. So there was a disconnect there, um, but I was successful in getting a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to be a full-time producer. They had a minority training grant then. Um, And after the two years of training, I was hoping to get into public affairs and news instead of arts and culture or some, some other division. And I found out that they had no job for me. What do you mean you found out they had no job for you? Well, they basically told me as my grant was almost over that I wouldn't have a job. So what did you do? Well, (laughs) I was shocked. Uh, And I consulted with some lawyer friends and I ended up filing a class action gender and uh, race discrimination suit uh, at the EEOC. I understand class action lawsuit, but what was the allegation? What was the evidence of discrimination at the station? Oh, there were 14 producers, um, and I was the only woman and only person of color. And how did the station respond to this? Well, they were not happy, um, and I knew I had to get out, and that's how I switched to radio, because I went over to be manager of KRB-FM. They happened to have an opening. But what ended up happening is a gentleman from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting came out unannounced and did like a three-day, I call it a stomp around the station, asking for information and data and this and that. Oh, so your lawsuit caused the National Corporation to say, what's going on? And they sent somebody out to check it out. Right, but he had no official authority in any kind of way. Um, But he raised so much havoc at the station that within a matter of a few months, while the EEOC thing was just, you know, going through the process, the station hired eight people of color. Sharon Maeda, (laughs) the woman who opened up KCTS and ended the male, white male only policies. Is that fair? Well, I don't think it was a policy. They just hired who they knew. 
Right. And they had no connections to communities of color. I mean, the original position I got at the station, they really wanted me to bring in more members, i.e. more donors from communities of color. It wasn't about programming, and I didn't realize that until after I got there. Got it. So they wanted the donors, but they didn't necessarily want the employees until you raised their, well, you know, they just raised the issue with them. You know, looking back on it, it was, I don't think it was an intentional policy. I think, you know, so-and-so knows somebody, right. they bring them in. You know, they're having a good time. They're working hard. And like happens in so many other places, it's it's just a matter of not being aware. Right. So you left the TV station. Right. And you went into radio. Yes. Um, I thought it was just a sidestep at the time, but I wasn't at the radio station more than, oh, maybe a few weeks when I realized that radio was so much more immediate, much less expensive and, you know, those days you could get in a phone booth and call in a story and it's on the air live. And that was very exciting to me. So I never went back to television. And what did you do in radio? I managed KRAB FM uh, for a couple of years. And then I got recruited to go down and be the executive director of Pacifica Radio Network in California. What is Pacifica Radio Network? Pacifica is actually the precursor to what we know as public radio today. They started in 1949 as a local station in the Bay Area, and it was created by a group of pacifists who had spent World War II uh, doing alternative service. And they felt that World War III could only be prevented if people learn to understand each other and have dialogue and discussions and so on. So the radio was very, very eclectic. They had to give out crystal sets door to door for people to even listen to their signal at the time. But it's uh, it's now a five station network in Washington, D.C., New York, Houston, Los Angeles and the Bay Area. So a high, high percentage of the American people can hear their signals uh, across the country. How long were you with them? Six and a half years. And how far up did you go? In the- well, executive director was the top position. Wow. Yeah, it was in a lot of financial trouble at that time. They were a million dollars in debt at the beginning of the Reagan era. And so I spent a good part of my time doing administrative, operational, and fundraising work uh, rather than producing radio. But the network exists today, so it's it was great. So when did you come back to Seattle? I came back in 87, Uh couldn't find a single job anywhere in broadcasting, and so started my own consulting business and um, did that until 93 when I was asked to join the Clinton administration. And what did you do for the Clinton administration? I was um, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, which means communications, um, for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development for Henry Cisneros. Oh, wow. That must have been exciting. It was. It was a. It was a very exciting time. It was a lot of hard work. It was another twenty four seven kind of a uh, situation. Uh, Twelve years of Republicans having been in charge in D.C. You know, we had to turn the ship around. And you know, every time I drive by New Holly or Rainier Vista or Greenbridge out in White Center, I smile to myself because I know that those were projects that were pushed during the time that. You know, I was at HUD, and those projects worked. What was different about those projects? Hope Six was a program that 
used um, a concept of mixed income housing so that they put market rate condos or apartments and individual homes into the projects as well as one-for-one replacement for the public housing residents so that there's an economic mix within the complex rather than warehousing all the poor people like some of the um, HUD projects from the 60s and 70s did, you know, Cabrini Green and some of those in the Midwest and Northeast were basically warehouses for really poor people. Studies clearly show that if you have a mix of people, there's much more opportunity for those who are low income to find a job, to find mentors, to for their children to grow up with other kids who are not going to the food bank, you know, all those kinds of things. So you begin to see a lot of things change for the people that live there. At the, at the front end of the show, I spoke about the fact that, you know, you are the woman that convinced my wife to get arrested for radical purposes of some type, immigration reform, not that radical, actually. Have you ever been arrested in a protest? Um, or when was the first time? Well, actually, very late in my involvement, um, because earlier on when I was a student activities advisor and worked at the Ethnic Cultural Center in the in the 70s and the height of all the movements here in Seattle, um, it was part of my job to make sure that the students were taken care of, that were arrested. So I was the one that worked with the public defenders. I was the one that made sure that bail was taken care of and all those kinds of things. So I went to all of those demonstrations with my press credentials around my neck and a camera (laughs) so that I wouldn't get it. In those days, they didn't arrest the media. So I wouldn't get arrested because I was the one that had to run to the payphone. This is before cell phones, of course. Right. So I would run to the payphone and call X number of public defenders and say, so-and-so, so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so are on their way to booking so that they would go there and meet them. Um, so I didn't actually get arrested till 1985, and that was at the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C., and I got arrested on behalf of Pacifica Radio. Really? The only media entity in the United States to um, have someone get arrested at the South African Embassy. How did that, tell me how that happened. How did that come about? Well, um, this was during the time when it was very orchestrated. Amy Carter, President Carter's daughter, got arrested, celebrities were getting arrested. Every day they wanted a half a dozen people arrested at the embassy. And they called Pacifica Radio and asked, um, I believe it was the chair of our board, Jack O'Dell, uh, if someone would get arrested on behalf of Pacifica because they had no media um, people being arrested. So I was planning on being on the East Coast anyway, so I went and got arrested there. Um, And that was a very orchestrated kind of event. Um, And then more recently, of course, with your wife, Peggy Lynch, (laughs) 33 of us women got arrested um, at the state Republican headquarters in Bellevue. Um, There were 33 women from the ages of 18 to 88 who all uh, got arrested on behalf of the undocumented young people that we uh, supported. Um, they couldn't risk getting arrested, and so we got arrested for them. Basically, we went to the Republican headquarters because the four Republican members of Congress were the only in the Washington state delegation that were not advocating for immigration reform. And we went to their office to ask the staff there to connect us by telephone 
to the members back in D.C. So why were you doing, um, I just want to keep tracking the story, why were you doing this work now of organizing, helping organize these uh, this mass arrest and the immigration policy. Well, actually, Pramila Jayapal was organizing. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was the work in, you were doing? But in recent years, um, I, since 2012, um, I was honored to start 21 Progress, a new nonprofit organization that would work on leadership development for the next generation. And as we were starting the organization, President Obama announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DACA program, which helps undocumented young people um, be free of deportation, give them a social security number um, so they could get a job and help them get into college. And that happened as we were planning 21 Progress, and we said, well, if there isn't a leadership development issue that needs to be moved along, is these young people need to be helped. So I went to the immigration rights groups and found out what all of them were doing. And the one piece that nobody was doing that was really uh, an important issue was it cost $465 to apply for this status. And so these young people mostly didn't have access to $465. So we created a microloan program, interest-free, And while they were paying it back slowly, um, we had college readiness, job readiness, workers' rights workshops, civic engagement, you know, all of that to help them become leaders as they were waiting for their status. And we have now over 300 young people that have gotten through the process and the stories that they tell about how it's changed their lives is just so exciting. You know, this... um I, I've been talking about this in a somewhat joking manner, but it was a really big deal in our household. And Peg came home to me one day and said, I'm speaking to Sharon Maeda, and uh, she wants me to get arrested, and I know you're running for re-election, so what do you think of that? <laughs> and and I answered, um, I, I I can't tell you what to do. You have to you know, make up your own mind. This is a, you know, this is a matter of conscience for you and I can't put my thumb on the scale one way or the other. This is your call, Peg. This happened at least three or four times. She would come ask me what I thought and I would say, it's your call. And then one day she came home to me and said, I don't care what you think. I'm getting arrested, she said. (laughs) I said, I never said I was against it. But that was the way it worked out. You know, when we first talked, I said, now you've got to talk to Mike about this because he is running for re-election and you are the wife of the sitting mayor. Um, So it does have implications, you know, and is is one of the SPD, you know, uh, security force going to be with you? And, you know, what happens when you get arrested and they're in another jurisdiction and all those kinds of things. But she... Um, there was no question that she was passionate about the issue because she had worked with some of our young people as a volunteer before. And so she kind of had met, she had met a few of them and, and she knew some of their stories and everything. Um, but you know, you're right. She came to that decision. And it's interesting because when I was active in my neighborhood and active within the Sierra club and, you know, going to meetings all the time, there, there was, I mean, we intersected in the house and with the kids and with lots of things. But basically, I did my thing, and, and she was you know, on the 
PTAs, and she's a bookkeeper, so she was the treasurer. And when I ran for mayor the first time, that that's kind of stayed. She didn't actually come out on the campaign trail too much with me in 2009, a little bit, but not a lot, you know, because she had all of her responsibilities too. But over the course of being mayor and meeting with everybody, I think that whole experience radicalized her a little. It radicalized me more than a little because you actually get exposed to people and the challenges they face. You know, not just the dreamers, but all of, you know, all of the communities that, that are really facing serious challenges in the, in the city. So that was a real progression for Peg from attending events with me, you know, to really connecting with communities to then deciding to get arrested. And then be the featured person on all the media coverage of the arrest. Oh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was funny. It was really something. And she came home. She came home that night. And she was all, uh, all the reporters, they only wanted to talk to me. And I said, well, I, I told you, Peg, it's going to be a big deal if you get arrested. And she said, I thought you meant the protest was going to be a big deal. She, she actually had no idea that she would be the center of attention. And coincidentally, pure coincidence, it was the day that I had to concede the mayor's race. I had, you know, the votes were coming in. Everybody, of course, is holding out hope that the votes are going to get better and better in our delayed election system here in, in Seattle. And they weren't, so I had to stand up and concede. And all the media was there and everybody was there. And it was kind of funny, as I'm being as gracious as I can be under the circumstances. And, and of course, I'm disappointed. I knew that later that day, Peg was going to get arrested. So it was, a, it was a fun little piece. It turns out that the media that day was all, Mayor McGinn concedes election, wife arrested. That's how they all ran the headlines. <laughs> I well, also, I also, uh, I, I think I picked up Mio from school that day. And when I picked her up, I, she was like, how's mom? And I said, I'm getting a real lawyer. These ACLU lawyers aren't working out, um, which was a joke. That was, of course, released by then. But <laughs> Well, I think there's no putting the genie back in the bottle now. I don't know. She, uh. If, and by the way, the, the consequence was court costs, a fine, and having to volunteer uh, for the community. So she ended up volunteering with your organization, Sharon. Yes, she did. Um, she had actually started volunteering before that happened. Um, and we uh, ran a tax program in 11 different languages for those folks that are eligible for the earned income tax credit but didn't really know it because of language Um, differences. And so we went into the Asian Counseling and Referral Service. We went into um, union halls where they have lots of low-wage workers like the janitors at SEIU 6. We went all over. We even went into some uh, low-income apartment buildings. And um, with her financial background, she was a whiz at helping them with their taxes and did a wonderful job. I think she would have volunteered though without the yes the court she w- order. She, she was she was already <laughs> she was already signed up and already trained and already certified by the IRS to do this. So there's another part of Sharon's story, which is with all of this experience, um, she applied. Was it eight years ago? There was a, a a vacancy on the city council. 2006. Right. There was a vacancy on the city council. There was an open appointment process. And at that time, you put your name in to be voted on by the other city council members. And uh, in 2006, you came in second to Sally Clark. Right. And then Sally Clark resigned. 
um, there was the same process, and you came in second to John Okamoto. Boy, it would have been great to have you on the council when I was mayor, Sharon. <laughs> no, it would have been great. But, you know, to be honest with you, in 2006, I had returned from New York, and um, it was like, oh, well, let me take a look at this. And without a whole lot of thought, you know, 95 other people and myself, right. we all put our names in, uh, not really knowing what the process was. Um, to make it to the finalists, I was very surprised. To miss it by a vote or two was a little disheartening, but it wasn't like part of my life plan or something. Right. Um, friends have always encouraged me to, to run for office because I've been so involved in electoral politics. I've managed campaigns. I've knocked on thousands and thousands of doors. I remember uh, calling into Wisconsin. I made 700 calls in one day uh, for the reelection of President Obama. Uh, and, you know, I've always been involved in, in elections. But this time around, I really had to think about it for a week because I just retired in February, and I thought, do I want to put myself through this process again? And for me, there were two answers of why I went ahead and did it. One, I looked at the agenda for the city for the rest of the year, and affordable housing was clearly front and center. And because I've been involved in housing, not just at HUD, but as a nonprofit funder, as a developer, as a part of an asset management company, as an advocate, um, throughout the generations I or decades, I felt like, I need to give that a try. And then the other and more important one is a lot of the young people that I've been trying to get involved in the in civic engagement and to take part and to register to vote and register others to vote and be involved in the electoral process. They encouraged me to run. They said, oh, you've got to run, you've got to run. And at that point, I felt like I had to um, go ahead and subject myself to whatever I'd be subjected to in the process the second time. Well, you came off great. There's Thank no you. question about that. And it's funny, I, I was reflecting on it from my perspective. And I think that your career and your experience is so interesting because you've been an administrator, you've been on the inside, you've been a Clinton political appointee. Yet at the same time, you've also you know, been over on that further left edge in terms of being an activist and, and helping activists and being in a supportive role, not, not necessarily up front and front and center on it, but very much part of that milieu as, as well. And as somebody who moves between those two worlds, it makes you a very, very appealing candidate to, to, to a lot of folks. But my theory of the case is I think you're really well aligned with the people of Seattle and your values and approach and clearly have the resume, but you're a little too progressive for the city council <laughs> is, is really what it boils down to. And you're a little too progressive then, and you're a little too progressive now. And I think that's an artifact of uh, citywide elections in the city of Seattle, in which if you want to win citywide, you need to get a lot of donations from people with money. And the people with money they don't really want people like you who don't owe them anything. And I, I think they were really good challengers, but I think you were just a little too left for the city council to be really comfortable with you. 
And so they they pick somebody who's just, uh, you know, also fits within Seattle liberal values, but not quite so far left. You know, that may be the case, but it's kind of ironic because throughout my career, I've been in so many places where I'm the middle person, where I bring the forces together, where I help people find common ground, where I'm, uh, you know, the go-between or whatever. I mean, at one point in my career, I actually, after the Clinton administration work, I actually considered going into diplomatic work um, because people told me that I was really good at bringing disparate forces together and talking and, and, you know, the negotiations and all of that, you know, giving, helping both sides realize that they've got to give up a little bit of something in order to get to a place that they want to be. And um, if I were like 10, 15 years younger, I might've gone that route. But at that point I felt like with all the career diplomats, it would be really difficult to get into that field, you know, in middle age. Well, it's 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 interesting because I uh, before I was mayor, I was very active in my community, helping build community support around how do we redevelop our neighborhood and what does our neighborhood look like. Um, I started a nonprofit that was bringing people together around um, big around local policies, trying to bring more people to the table and build coalitions for change. And uh, when I became mayor, I think I was a little too left for the city council too. So it, it, I, I think it's about that, that distance that from activism to insider and where you are on that spectrum. Right. And, and they wanted somebody a little closer to the insider end of the spectrum and a little further away from the activist side of the spectrum. Well, I think it was clear um, from when they first announced it. They said they wanted a caretaker. You to, know. Take, to take care of whom? Well, but I think that that means don't rock the boat, don't make right. major changes. Let's finish the agenda that's already here and let's not muddle it up with a whole bunch of new things, you know. And in my mind, I felt that I could be much more than a caretaker in helping them move their agenda forward. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I knew going into it that they that the mayor and some of the council members had a favored candidate. And um, I certainly have nothing against John Okamoto. I was his Sunday school teacher way back when. <laughs> um, but So he's a good kid. So he was a good kid. Yeah, he was, a great, he was a great kid, and he comes from a great family. This has been a very enjoyable conversation, and, um, and we've pulled the veil back on how to recruit somebody uh, to get arrested for immigration reform, <laughs> which is... Get Sharon Maida on your side. So one of the things I love to do, as you know, is have a song at the start and have a song at the finish. You got to pick the starting one, and you get to pick the finishing one, too. Tell me the song you picked. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I think it's just as relevant today as back when it was a number one hit. And why is that? Well, because we're still dealing with the issues. I mean, whether you're talking about Ferguson or New York or Chicago or even John T. Williams here in Seattle, you know, there is a big disconnect between uh, law enforcement and communities of color. Well, thank you for coming on the show. This has been great, and I look forward to the next time we get together. Thank you, Mike. 
Love can come ahead. 